0: Oh Father, your church is given to your Son and it's a glorious, glorious bride and it's a messy mess in so many ways. Let we thank you for the beauty of your grace and how you call all the sheep who have gone astray back to your Son. That You draw them by Your Spirit. And they repent and they believe the good news of the Gospel. And they become one of Your own sons and daughters, redeemed by the precious blood of the dear Lamb, our Lord Jesus. And that in weakness You call us, not because of strength, but because of Your mercies. And the wise you cast down and the foolish wisdom of God to the world becomes ours of a Christ who died on a cross to pay the fullness of the penalty for our sins. And you gather us to be your people in churches all across the globe for your kingdom ever grows. Properly and in submission to the degrees of the king. And everything about that reality is entirely not true of King Jesus as He approaches Jerusalem. Jesus is an entirely unique and an entirely, He's an entirely peculiar kind of king. He doesn't, he doesn't fit that mold in His approach to Jerusalem in any way shape, or form. He wasn't born in a palace. He won't die in one. He doesn't have an entourage of who's who. He doesn't have an entourage of servants. He came to serve them. There are no high ceilings here. There's no marble walls or precious gemstones as Jesus um, enters Jerusalem as king in our passage today, there's no grand courtyards and there's very little respect or recognition, though there is some. And even though Jesus is the good king, his people do not want his reign over them, except for a few except for a few. A few recognize the royalty, the divine royalty of our Lord. They don't recognize the fullness of His majesty because we often think about the fullness of His majesty um, just being on display in His place at the right hand of the Father, but that's not the full picture. The reason that He is exalted to the right hand of the Father and reigns over the world as Lord of Lord and King of Kings is because He came and obeyed His Father all the way to a cross. And so you can't understand the majesty of Jesus without actually seeing and understanding what the cross of Christ and why He died on that cross and what it's all about. Um, and so what they don't recognize is that part. So they don't recognize the fullness of His majesty. And they can't yet, really. They can't. And so don't give the disciples too hard of a time for what was going to be a much clearer presentation of new revelation of who their Messiah was. But they know Jesus is the King. They know Jesus is the King. Do you know that Jesus is the King of the universe and that Jesus is the King over the whole earth? Do you know that? He reigns from heaven as king. And so in our passage this morning, I think what Luke, the writer of this gospel, goes out of his way to do is to make the case that Jesus is king. And he does it in some really remarkable ways. And I, and I think there will be a, a lot here that will really encourage your heart. And so um, he makes pains in the phrases and in the way it recalls Old Testament Stories and imagery to exalt Jesus as the king, but it's a very peculiar situation. It's very humble. It's very lowly. And there's really then, after Luke makes the point that Jesus is the king in several different ways, there's really three responses that take place to Jesus being king. And the three responses, one is celebration. This is actually the Christian response in this passage. This is a response of those who have faith in Jesus. They celebrate that Jesus is King, that their Lord reigns. But then there's also those who, um, re- those who just judge Jesus harshly. In fact, uh, and then thirdly, there's um, the response of just rejection, and then destruction. And if you remember last week when we were in the parable of minas, right? Right. There's some that Jesus celebrates because they took the minas. They multiplied them. Gave them back to the king who returned, right? And then, um, well done, good and faithful servant. You're in charge of ten cities. You're in charge of five cities. So there's the celebration piece there. Then there's the one who's, I just knew that you were a severe man. And so I did nothing with the one mina that you gave me, and then there's eventually the enemies, the enemies of Jesus, and he says this in verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me, so there's just this complete rejection of Jesus and destruction, and what I want you to understand, the flow of the way Luke has... Um, put this together, is that what's happening in the triumphal entry is exactly parallel in a real-time moment to the parable of the minas. And um, with the parable of the minas, if the parable of the minas is focusing on, you know, the second coming of Christ, and ultimately the conquering king, Jesus, and him judging the world, then what's happening here is, this is the more small version In real time, with real people, um, not just a parable. uh, This is the smaller version of the way this all goes down with Jerusalem as a picture of what's going to go down with the second coming. Okay? Your Bible is put together and just, it's so incredibly um, well um, written in seeking to make the points that it wants to make. It is, it really, I think, is the supreme. Uh, it is the supreme piece of literature in the history of the world. And um, the way that Luke puts these, the parable together and the triumphal entry together to make the point about who Christ is, is really just glorious. And to hammer home the, the needed response of Jesus' church to him and the needed response of lost people to him, lest they come under his judgment, And so the faithful celebrate the unfaithful judge and his enemies reject him and are destroyed. We're going to see that again as the response to King Jesus. But let's just read the passage and then I want to make some points about how Luke draws out who this king is. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. This is where he's been headed for a long time, right? This is the dark cloud hanging over Jesus' head. He's going up to Jerusalem. When He drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away... Or those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their clo- cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. can imagine that weeping. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So I want you to see something. I want you to see how Luke makes everything with this donkey and the story of this donkey. Because it is a donkey. It's probably not the colt of a horse. It's a donkey. Um, Ultimately, the fulfillment of uh, Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah chapter nine verse nine. But several reasons and um, ways that Luke points to Jesus. The first is Jesus' divine knowledge. Right? Jesus says, "You will find a colt. You will find a colt. Go here. You will find a colt." Now, um, if this was just you know this one-off thing, you know maybe we could make an argument. Well, Je- maybe Jesus knew these people from his. Previous kind of engagement around the area of Jerusalem, and you know, and they were like, hey, if you ever need a donkey, you know where to find one. (laughs) Except the the bigger point in the passion narrative is Jesus is aware of every single thing that's gonna come upon him, and constantly he's telling them, "This This is what's gonna happen, this is what's gonna happen, this is what's gonna happen, this is what's gonna happen. It's evidence that God was with him. It's his divine knowledge and control of all of the events of his life and especially in his death. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die there. Okay, go over there and get a colt. Why? Because your king is coming on a donkey. Now the colt, there's some interesting descriptions of the colt. For instance, when you're reading your Bible and there's these phrases like, Go into the village in front of you, verse 30, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Right, well, Why did that matter? Why did it matter? Why did Jesus have to say that? And why did the, the colt have to be one on which no one has ever sat? Right, it's, not, it's not really just part of the story. Uh, it's not just a filler detail. It's actually there on purpose because um, this cult is the kind of cult that might be fit for a king. Why does, it, why does Luke include these phrases? It's because to one familiar with the Old Testament, right? remember, Jesus is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, when you see these phrases like this, Oftentimes, it would, if you knew your Old Testament well, it would recall something to make a point. And um, in Numbers in Numbers nineteen two, it's uh, oftentimes uh, it was considered so a, a heifer or a beast of burden, you might say, um, that had never had a yoke on it or on which no one had ever sat was considered sacred and um, would be sacrificed according to particular. Um, laws and regulations for purification. This was one sacred and worthy of a sacrifice. So possibly the sacredness of it um, makes it sacred enough to carry King Jesus. I think more likely though, to one familiar with the Old Testament, the cult cult on which no one has ever ridden would kind of recall the story of 1 Samuel in chapter 6 where um, Samuel and the, the crew is going to get the Ark of the Covenant. And they are to use to pull the cart on which the ark will go two milk cows that have never been yoked. And when they go, they then take the ark of the covenant back into Jerusalem, the Jerusalem area. And so what's the significance of that? the significance of it is the ark of the covenant is the most significant symbol of the presence of the lord in the old testament it is the place where the shekinah glory rested on the mercy seat and so when luke when these little phrases are included like this it's 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 kind of like what does that have to do with anything well it, it's just causing you to recall things that's all Similar language is used in other places of Scripture that precede this. And so you think, oh, they were going to get the Ark of the Covenant because the presence of God was going to return to Jerusalem. And so here you have Jesus kind of building on that reality to to say, go get the cold on which no one has ever sat because the presence of God is returning to Jerusalem. You have Jesus' divine knowledge. You have the cult fit for a king. Jesus' divine authority. Jesus' divine authority. Tell the masters of the cult the Lord has need of it. (laughs) Did you ever think about those people? Did you ever think about those people in the story? The owners of this cult? I hear the disciples show up and, you know, they're like, like, why are you untying the colt? The Lord has need of it. You never hear from those people again. Okay. (laughs) I don't know anything about their response other than we assume that they were like, okay. But it's really interesting because a lot of commentators suggest there that phrase, the Lord has need of it, would be better translated, it's Lord has need. is that interesting? It's Lord has need. In other words, there's a greater master than the ones who own the donkey. And so Jesus' is divine authority over... Uh, And His ownership of all creation is on display even in the claiming of this colt. Its Lord has need. So then Jesus is placed on the colt, right? It's really interesting the way that this is worded. Verse 35, And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. You know? Like you kind of expect you know you have a horse and you, you then just climb up onto the horse, you know you expect it to say he climbed up on the horse or he climbed up on the donkey that's not what's actually taking place here. They actually are picking him up, and after spreading their cloaks on the donkey, they're actually pitting, picking him up and setting him setting him on it he's placed he's placed on it, kind of like a king would be picked up and and set. Set, he was set on his throne of sorts. And then there's this interesting thing. So in Luke, you're used to the triumphal entry with palm branches, right? You know? And you don't have any of that here in Luke. Luke doesn't record any of that. But what he does then tell us is they laid their cloaks, they took off their cloaks and they laid it on the ground for him to walk on. So you see that? Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And then verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? You know, it just seems odd. It's not that odd. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of like this would be their way in some sense of rolling out the red carpet. That's the idea, right? Um and so, even in ancient Roman history, we have examples recorded of you know military men like Cato. You can read about him later, of when his military service ends, the people laying out their cloaks for him to walk on as a just a an symbol of honor. And so, with Jesus. Um, you have them laying on their cloaks in a pattern actually, that happens in the Old Testament with Jehu. Second Kings chapter nine: Jehu is anointed king, and this is what the people do. They lay their cloaks down on the ground for Jehu to walk on them while they shout, "Jesus is king." Jehu is king." And so now with Jesus, the same thing is happening like' they're, um, like a coronation ceremony where they're announcing Jesus is king. It was a show of honor. And then the joy of the disciples recounting the works of King Jesus. See in verse 37, as He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives sits 300 feet above Jerusalem, around 3,000 foot sea level, and coming down the Mount of Olives to enter Jerusalem. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Right, the picture here in the story of Luke's gospel is Jesus has been heading to Jerusalem for a long time, and Jesus has accomplished just a multitude of miraculous, powerful, mighty works and miracles. Over the years, we've seen numerous ones of them just in Luke, and I'll go over a few in just a minute, but in John 21-25, maybe you're new to who Jesus is. Here's what the Bible tells us about Jesus. John 21-25 says this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. what we've seen in Luke's Gospel so far. We've seen Jesus rebuke demons and they come out of men crying, You are the Son of God. We've seen Jesus then go on to heal those with diseases. and In fact, in Luke 4.40, there's this wonderful phrase for the people who came where He was at at the moment that He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. Just such an encouraging, such an encouraging phrase that he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. You ever wonder if Jesus could heal you? He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And I mean heal your soul. Chapter 5 of Luke, he heals a leper and a paralytic. In chapter 6, he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And in chapter 6, verse 18, a great multitude comes to see Him. And they came to hear Him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits, all of them were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed them all. I mean, you have to think about just how different this is to the normal way the world is. Is happening and functioning, right? the inbreaking of Jesus and just the healing of multitudes of people to display that He is the King with divine authority who has power over all things. Your Messiah has come; He's come to set free the captive, to give sight to the blind, right? to free the oppressor, the oppressed. Chapter seven, He heals the centurion's servant merely by His word. And that from a distance, he doesn't even touch him. He just, you know, be well. And the centurion goes back and the servant is well. He raises the widow's son back to life. And then the passage in chapter 7 says, And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people, because the things that Jesus was doing, and so many of them that the books of the world could not contain, were all a display that he does what only God can do. And the people who had eyes to see recognized God has visited his people. In chapter 8, he calms the storm. And then he casts out the legions of demons and sends them off into the pigs so they're thrown into the abyss, the ocean, and the ancient world. He heals Jairus' daughter who was dying from bleeding, 12 years old. Chapter 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He casts the demon out of the boy and what do the people do? And they were all astonished at the majesty of God. Look, that's like seven instances just through the first nine chapters of the Gospel of Luke, of the glory of Jesus, that he is the God who has visited his people. And just as those who were healed, celebrated and rejoiced with great joy and glorified God, here now, in this moment, as Jesus rides onto this Rides on this donkey into Jerusalem. The disciples celebrate God is visiting His people. They say, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you should understand this. Luke's very particular here. This is Psalm 118, verse 26. And you know this in the other Gospels. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's how you know it. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That is Psalm 118. Verse 26, but here Luke recounts them as saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus here is the fulfillment. He's not just any pilgrim who might find their way into Jerusalem to worship God, to make their sacrifices, to pay homage, okay? Because that was a normal thing. People flowing into Jerusalem on there uh, to pay homage, to worship God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? And so you would say the, the 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 people there greeting those coming would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in this case, Jesus isn't just like any other pilgrim wandering into Jerusalem. So it doesn't make sense to categorize Him like everyone else to say, blessed is the One who comes in the name of the Lord. So Luke very particularly wants people to understand this is Jesus your King. Blessed is the King. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 118.26. He is the reason why everyone for generations went into Jerusalem. He's not just the One. He's not just One among many. He is the King And he alone. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So I think Jesus has made his point. Or Luke has made his point about Jesus' divine royalty. Now there's three responses to King Jesus here. One is celebration. You know? One is celebration. And... Yeah, the Church of Jesus Christ just needs to get better at celebration. You know? And I get. We're we're all white. Well, if most of us are. Some of us are a little browner. Partly because of tan, partly. But, you know, there's. That's why Daniel moves more up on the stage than anybody else. <laughs> and aren't you glad for it? Aren't you glad for it? You know? The rest of us are more like, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're the church of Jesus Christ, and we have a king. And so the response to our king and to his works... Among us and his works in history and his works on the cross is celebration. And that ought to move us sometime. You know? It ought to move us a little bit sometime. And I'm not any better at it than the rest of us. But celebration. And this is the this is the this is this is the one of the three responses that is Christian. And I just want to tell you, I think it takes faith to celebrate. It takes faith in God, rather more than fear of people, to actually celebrate in something that actually could be considered a legitimate celebration. I mean, it's hard enough for us to just clap about something worthy of celebration. because We're all just like, is now the time? <laughs> Should I? What if I'm the only one who claps? I think the same things, right? Celebration. Celebration. I mean, this is the beginning of the, you know, I mean, for some, this the first response to finally understanding who Jesus is, is kind of this exuberant, just excitement about the fact that Jesus saved me. Jesus saved me. They come to understand Jesus actually is the king who He is displayed to be in Scripture, and there's celebration. I want us to get better at celebration. That's all I'm saying. I want us to get better at celebration. It's celebration with faith, celebration of our king. You know And I sympathize with those who, you know want us to have a piano and to play some hymns that have some more stark melody to them. I sympathize with that because there are things that you can do on a piano with a melody to help with celebration that aren't as easy to accomplish on a guitar. It's just not as easy. And so uh, I sympathize with that reality. There's some times where I think, you know, right now, We need a really stark melody that can fire us up a little bit and maybe even make us clap a little. Right? Do I know anything about what I'm talking about with music, Chris? Okay, is there something to what I'm saying here? All right. Celebration. Second response is judgment. Here's the Pharisees are always around. This is actually the last time the Pharisees will be around, at least specifically by name. The Pharisees are always around. And, and so they see this blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, this celebration of this. And, and, and we're talking about a small group of people here. Maybe 120. Maybe, give or take. Um, who, are, who are celebrating the coming of Jesus. Even though they're walking into Jerusalem, it's not like all of Jerusalem breaks out in this celebration. This is the outcast. This is the blind man. This is the leper who's been healed. You know, This is um, the Zacchaeus who was the tax collector. These are the people who just everyone despised. And Jesus was kind to them and merciful and gracious and saves them and they follow him. And so there's this small ragtag group of outcasts who burst into song and are celebrating just like we're a bunch of ragtag, misfit group of outcasts who ought not to think much of ourselves, just that we have Jesus who shows shown kindness to us, right? Right? I'm pretty committed to making sure you understand that. And not thinking much of yourself, right? And there's the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, the Pharisees are always correcting Jesus. They're always rebuking Jesus. They're always judging Jesus wrongly and correcting Jesus. And and here's the thing. We separate ourselves from Pharisees and we think we never do that. Except we always do this. We always think that what we think when it uh, comes into conflict with Scripture that we're wiser than Jesus. We do the exact same thing. And so this is a response in us that we have to get out. Because we do the same thing. But here they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know, because they just think, well, here's a Jewish rabbi who's receiving this Messianic. They understood it. That these people were praising Jesus because He was the Messianic King who had come in fulfillment of Old Testament promise. And the one thing they didn't want was anybody to attribute anything uh, like the Messianic to They didn't want to attribute anything messianic to Jesus that he was the king who had come. That's the one thing they would not tolerate. So they want him to shut up. Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. If you were a real rabbi and a real teacher, you would never receive this kind of praise. And so Jesus' response to them is just awesome, right? He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Right? Jesus will be worshipped. Some bring their harsh judgment of him. They bring their unbelief. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Some just don't want to listen to Jesus because they know better than him. You don't know better than him. Nothing good has ever come from me functioning like I know better than Jesus. In fact, every shame in my life, every shame in my life, and everything miserable about my life, the most miserable things about my life that are um, because of me, have everything to do with me thinking I'm wiser than Jesus. With me thinking, like, Jesus, you shouldn't have said that in your word because this is better. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then there's the response of rejection. Verse 41. The whole of Jerusalem now, he actually draws near close to the city. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And I don't think... This isn't the weeping of, you know, just like a solitary tear. This is just, this is loud, vocal. I don't know if you've ever wept, like just been overcome with weeping. But this is a completely overcome with weeping. He wept over it, saying... would that you, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that you, at the center of My people for all of these years, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And his point is, the things that make for peace with God. The things that make for peace with God but now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, it's too late. It's too late for Jerusalem. It's too late. They are hidden from your eyes. God has now hidden from your eyes the ability to find peace with God. It's too late. So what's going to happen? For the days will come upon you when your enemies, this is Rome, this is, this is Jesus' prophesying of something that's going to happen in, within 40 years of his death. Okay. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. In other words, the, the sense is Rome, the empire that's currently ruling over you, will now destroy you. Okay. And will destroy you because you've rejected me. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. In other words, you will face judgment and there will be no escape. And tear you down to the ground. They're going to completely level Jerusalem, which is to be the center of the worship of God. And And Jesus is essentially saying, They're going to destroy Jerusalem and they're going to tear down the temple because you're not going to worship me here anymore. You've rejected me and I'm rejecting you. And tear you down onto the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave. And that's one of the most intense statements that Jesus makes. They will tear tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. That is just a horrifying verse. And it should, just should make our souls just tremble at the judgment of God. This is Jesus who says this. Jesus isn't the Jesus of pictures you've seen in Renaissance art. Jesus is King, and He is the King who has all rights of judgment and all authority. Tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. That'll just make us tremble in the way we raise our families, and the way we raise our children. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem, the one place where everyone should have recognized Jesus and the one place that no one recognized Jesus. Except the ragtag bunch that Jesus gathered as he wandered all over Galilee and around the nation of Israel and even beyond Israel. And in Jerusalem, the heart of the worship of God, they know nothing of Jesus. And it's because They just want to live their way. They want a system where they can worship God the way they think they should be able to worship God. They have a system of self-commendation. That God God favors us because we do everything he said. And that entirely misses the point of Jesus because the point of Jesus is way better news than that. The point of Jesus is... You can't be good enough. You can't keep the law. You can't do what I require of you. You need a Savior. And your Savior, God, has come and visited His people. He has come bringing salvation, riding on the foal of a donkey, just as was said. And so what will your response be to Jesus? Will it be rejection? Just don't reject Jesus. Don't reject Jesus. The only, solution, the only solution to your rejection of Jesus is destruction for you. That's it. Don't stand in judgment of Jesus. You say, I never stand in judgment of Jesus. Yes, you do. This is why we have to constantly come back to the Scripture and say, no, what does Scripture say? This is what you say. This is what Scripture says. Do you see how you're standing in judgment of Jesus? Or the response of celebration the response of celebration that we have a king we have a king stand with me for prayer would you God, we praise You that You have sent King Jesus. We praise You that You have sent King Jesus to be the Savior of the world and that You have, through Him, by Your Spirit, made a people for Yourself and You are worthy of all glory. May You grow in us the ability to celebrate with faith. Celebrate with faith as we would do things like the Lord's Supper. To celebrate with faith as we sing to praise You spontaneously with thanksgiving for Your works among men and among us. And at the end of the day, Father, not to us, but to Your name be glory, we pray. Turn those living in judgment of Jesus and turn those living in rejection of Jesus. Turn them by Your mercies to Yourself just as You have turned us to Yourself. that nothing of our works may be our trust, but that we would trust wholly in the work of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen.